Hello and thank you for choosing to listen to this week's message from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would challenge and encourage your heart to rest in Christ while striving to honor Him daily. God bless. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. That's where we're going to be this morning. Ezekiel 36. If you don't know where that is, get to about Isaiah and then just keep going and find the biggest book after that before the New Testament. Okay? It's a pretty big one. Ezekiel 36. Um, if you have been here in the, or been paying attention the last couple of weeks, you probably know that we were supposed to begin the book of Ruth today, and I was really excited to do so, but once the bubonic plague hit our area, I decided that maybe we should call an audible, and so, well, I did. I called an audible. We're going to do Ezekiel 36 today. Um, a wonderful passage. Uh, the reason that I wanted to, to delay Ruth is because uh, the preaching of the word isn't for just the individual. It's to stir the hearts, yes, of the individual, but also it's a corporate practice. It's for the church. Uh, and so I, if it were John and we were going to be here for a year and a half in Ruth, then I probably would have gone ahead and gone for it. But since we're only going to be in Ruth for a few weeks, and that first week is absolutely essential to lay a foundation, uh, and it will be for the church, then I wanted the church to actually be here. Uh, and so we have a wonderful word from Ezekiel, and we're going to get there, uh, but we're going to delay Ruth one more week until more of our brothers and sisters can rally around us and grow as a result of uh, looking into it. I'm really excited to preach it, and to be honest, I'm a little bummed out that I'm not. But I absolutely love this passage in Ezekiel, and I really believe that you will too, okay? Uh, some of you guys uh, know this, that I'm really into movies, and I know it's not going to surprise you that I'm going to talk about them, okay? So just deal with it. We're just going to talk about it for just a second. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but superhero movies have been all the rage for the past like 20 years. Uh, you look at the box office, and there's a good chance that there's a superhero movie in the box office because superhero films are at an all-time high. It's weird to go to one and uh, the the movie not be a huge upbuilding about how great that superhero was. For example, if you were to go to a Batman movie, It'd be really strange if you left that movie and were like, man, the police force in Gotham's pretty awesome. That'd be weird, right? Because the hero of the movie is supposed to be the namesake of the movie. Batman's supposed to be the hero. It'd be weird if you went to a Superman movie and said, man, Spider-Man's awesome. No, because the, the hero is the central figure of that movie. And the same thing is obviously true, not just when we look at uh, films, but guys, did you know that the hero of the Bible is not you? Okay, the hero of the Bible is God himself. And so it will be a travesty for us to hear a sermon preached or to have a Bible study and come away from that sermon or come away from that Bible study and say, this is about me. I'm awesome. Guys, listen, the Bible is simply not about you. It's about a hero, but the hero is not us. The hero, and, and look, the hero is not even the characters that you're studying, really. The main character that we're to study in every book of the Bible and every page of Scripture is God. He is the life source of every bit of good news that is found in these pages. And so this morning, I want you to see how heroic our God is. 
The Bible is about the awesomeness of God. Especially in the Old Testament, we see this, but we see this in the New Testament as well. You know, the New Testament gets a lot of our attention, right? And I think rightfully so. It has a lot of mentions about Jesus. The apostles are exciting. Amazing things happen in those gospels and in the letters of Paul. Don't get me wrong. I love the New Testament and I preach mostly from the New Testament because it's familiar. But you understand that the New Testament from beginning to end, from, you know, the day one the New Testament began to the end of the book of uh, Revelation's writing, that only covers a 100-year span. That's not a lot of time when, it, when you think about the chronology of God's Word. 100 years is not a long time. That's all of the New Testament in a 100-year span. The Old Testament, on the other hand, was composed over a 1,000 years. It's a lot of time. And the reason I, I talk about that and talk about the chronology of it is that in the New Testament we see 100 years of God displaying His glory. But in the Old Testament we see Thousands of years of God displaying His glory. Now, which one do you think has a greater manifest of the glory of God? If you want to talk about bulk, it has to be the Old Testament. New Testament's wonderful. The gospel, I mean, the cross of Christ is the greatest outpouring of God's glory that we have ever seen. But you've got to understand there's a whole lot in the Old Testament that if we're not studying it, we are just missing a God of heroics. Ezekiel was one of the major prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel spoke to a community that had been forced from its home. You know, this guy is really strange in the way that he's been given a ministry opportunity. If you read the book of Ezekiel, and you know, some of you guys may even still be trucking on in your one year through the Bible, you know, thing. Maybe you've already betrayed it. Don't give up. Okay, keep going. But uh, the book of Ezekiel is always the place when I, you know, do the one year reading, Ezekiel is always hard for me to push through. First two chapters are great, but then it gets this, these dark ages in the book of Ezekiel. Then the, the end of the book finishes really strong. Those first two chapters, it's, it's, it's so strange to read it because God tells Ezekiel, Hey, Ezekiel, you're going to be my prophet to my people in a very difficult situation. You're going to preach to them. And guess what? This is what he tells Ezekiel in the first two chapters. He says, Ezekiel, you're going to preach and no one's going to listen. But that doesn't mean that you fail. You're going to preach and no one's going to listen. Be faithful anyway. And so the whole book of Ezekiel is about him preaching to God's people a word of judgment and yet a word of grace. And yet no one is going to hear his words. He spoke to a community that had been forced from its home. The exile is what we're talking about. God had been taken captive by Babylon and Assyria and then Persia later on. But here's the thing. God's people were not victims, though they were taken captive. They weren't victims. They were the culprits. A people who had broken their faith with God. They had taken up idols. They had been disobedient. And God told them and He warned them, you're going to be punished. I'm going to send you into exile. And they did not listen. They did anyway. And so God punished them, sent them into exile. And yet they were not victims in this. They were the perpetrators. The reason we study the Old Testament is because of one thing that Paul says in Romans 15, and certainly we see this echoed other places, but Paul said in Romans 15.4 that the Old Testament had immediate relevancy in its time. Okay, Ezekiel wrote this for a specific reason, but also that the Old Testament exists for the instruction of the church. Why is it important that we study the Old Testament? Because it exists for our instruction. This passage in Ezekiel met an immediate need for an immediate people group to warn them or to rebuke them and to encourage exiles. But it also functions as an instruction for God's church. And so we're going to read it now 
We're going to read two verses, and then we're going to pause for a second, and then we're going to read the rest of these verses. But it's Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 27. Okay? Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. We're going to start in verse 22, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. So let's take a look. Hopefully you have a, a, book, a copy of God's Word because we're going to look very closely at these verses, starting in verse 22. It says this, <clears throat> Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, <clears throat> It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Okay, so this kind of answers the question as to why God is about to do what he's about to do. We're going to look in verses 23 through 20 or 24 through 27 in just a minute what he's going to do. But the why is very clear here. And we'll pause for just a second. The why he's about to do what he's going to do is that they, Israel, had profaned his name. They made it look bad. Okay, they made his name look very bad. This is what happens when my children misbehave in public. My reputation is on the line as a, as a father, right? I did this a lot with my parents growing up. Whenever I had a terrible attitude and threw a fit in the grocery store, they were embarrassed. You know why? Because it profanes their name. You guys know this to be true. When I slung my bat against the dugout in little grade school baseball, you know who that made look bad? My father, who was the coach. And I heard about it, by the way. Okay. It profanes the name of the Father. And this is exactly what's happening here. Is that Israel had profaned God's name, not just to a few people, but to the nations. Why would God act and save Israel from exile, which is what's going to happen next? Would it be because He's a merciful God? Sure. Would it be because He's a loving God? Yeah, sure. Would it be because He's gracious? Yeah. But the main reason that God acts in salvation in this passage is to vindicate His Name. It's a very selfish reason. And he's just to do so. For his great name. God would save Israel for the same reason that he would go to the cross to save humanity. For his renown, for his glory, for his reputation. Okay, so that's the why. But now we're going to look at the how. How would his plan of salvation be accomplished in the Old Testament? And how does it instruct us 2,500 years later? Let's look at it. Starting in verse 24. <coughs> He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be, be careful to obey my rules. Israel had been exiled from their homes because of their idolatry, which had been really developing over centuries. They needed rescue. And so God, according to his greatness, according to his faithfulness, he makes a promise. Look again at verse 24, and we're going to walk through this. He says, I will take you. Here's a promise. I will take you from the nations and gather you 
from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is physical salvation he's talking about. He's going to do something physically to save his people. Rescue from Assyria and Babylon that had dragged them off and taken them captive. A time in which Ezekiel is writing these things and instructing God's people. Remember, this is not happening. It's not going to happen so much for them as it is because of who God is. Guys, listen, it's very, very straightforward. The God sees Israel as his. They are his Possession. And God is a possessive God. This salvation is God reclaiming what is His. Essentially what God is saying is that I'm going to get back what is mine because that says something about who I am. What would it say about me if I just let someone take my stuff and said, oh, it's fine. No. God's going to get back what is His, which is the nation of Israel. There's a movie that came out a long time ago relatively speaking, called Taken. It's starring a guy named Liam Neeson, which is, he's pretty hardcore, okay? He's a pretty tough guy, and he takes out a whole bunch of bad guys on his way to saving his daughter that is kidnapped at the beginning of the movie when his daughter gets taken. It's the name of the movie, obviously. Okay, when she gets taken, um, he gets on the phone with one of the guys that takes her, right? And he has this really famous quote in this movie, and it kind of makes you go, oh, it's about to go down, Okay. And he says this thing to this bad guy. He says, I have a particular set of skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. He's trained to be a, an expert at killing people. Okay. And he says, I'm an expert at doing this thing and I'm going to be a nightmare for people like you. And so I'll just ruin the movie. It's been a while since it's been out. And so here's your spoiler alert. He finds them and let's just say he uses those skills. Okay. He finds his daughter and he gets her back because she was taken. But the reason I say that is that In the movie, it's very clear that Liam Neeson's character takes down the bad guys because he is possessive about his daughter. It's his daughter. So what would it say about him if he just lets her go? He's a terrible father, if that's the case, right? No, he is going to make sure that he gets back what belongs to him, which is his daughter. Why? Because it's very simple. That's who he is. You see, God has never, or God has promised to never leave, never forsake Israel, His people. And so, if He is a faithful God, and He is, if He is a loving God, and He is, if that's who He is, He has to give back what is His, what He has promised, never to leave and never to forsake. But He's a faithful God, He's a loving God, He is also a God of justice who punishes the wrongdoer. The reason I say that is that he cannot in love, this is very important, okay? God cannot in love pardon the wrongdoer and still justly be a God that punishes the wrongdoer. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is a loving God, and so it's along with his character to pardon the criminal, the wrongdoer. But he's also a just God, and so he can't do that because he has to punish the wrongdoer. So he foretells of a time that we see in this passage that he would make it right where justice and love would meet, although they could never possibly meet. He's going to do something that's not possible. Reconcile the fact that he has to punish the sinner, and yet he's going to pardon the sinner. How can he do both of those things and remain both a just God and a loving God? Those things can't possibly correlate. They're impossible circumstances to reconcile. But as we see... In the thousands of years of our God in action, and by the way, also in countless Marvel movies that have oversaturated the cinema market, heroes are not limited by the impossible. This impossible situation 
is downright impossible. But our God makes possible what is impossible. And this is where the gospel comes into play. And we're going to see this now. If you're taking notes today, um, our structure is going to be very simple. And it's, I've got three of these things for you guys. Three reasons that we see that our God is, an, is a heroic God. Our God is a heroic God. Our heroic God. And one of the three ways that we're going to see this is number one, is that He has made me worthy. Emphasis on He and me because both of those things are incredible. All right, that He has done an impossible thing in making you worthy. That's a long, long reach. He's made us worthy, okay? And we're going to see how wonderful this is in this passage. I know you're writing, but I want you to see, and you can just glance down in your Bible and see this over and over. And and if you're good at this, you can just sort of paraphrase this entire paragraph from 22, even on several verses, even past 27. Notice how many times you see the words, I will. Just real quick, just glance down there. Do you see how many times you see the phrase, the two words, I will? Do you see that? I will. Do you know why it says that over and over and over and over? Because God is active. He is the active agent. He is doing and doing and doing. And what we're about to see, this amazing resurrection plan, this rescue mission, is on the action basis, not of Israel, but on the action basis of God. I will. I will. I will do it. And we see this. Look at verse 25. I will, there you see it, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now it's easy for us to brush over that like it's no big deal. Remember who we're talking about. Idolaters. He's not talking about he's going to give them a shower. He's saying, I'm going to clean you. You should be clean from all your uncleannesses. All your idols, I'm going to cleanse you from those. Not to us with 21st century Gentile or American eyes. It's hard for us to read this and really receive what is being said here. But this is a major Old Testament theme that we're seeing. You see, to be unclean was a physical description, but really it is of an inward spiritual reality. Uncleanness meant that someone wasn't worthy to worship in the presence of God. One had to be made clean before they could pray, before they could bring sacrifices to Him. So being made clean was very, very, very important. In fact, if they were were condemned to be unclean, they weren't even allowed to be part of God's people until they were made clean. So God resolves that if they're going to belong to Him, if Israel, who has been nationally deemed unclean, been carried off into captivity, if you guys are going to belong to Me, if you're going to be My worshipers, then they must be made clean as He is. We read about this in Peter. Jesus also says this in Matthew. It's also an Old Testament principle. God commands His people to be holy as I am holy. That's a tall order. Especially for constantly sinful and constantly unclean people. But God says, I will make you clean. People in the Old Testament that were deemed unclean had to go through extensive bathing rituals prescribed in the book of Leviticus, which was truly a temporary fix. It was a band-aid on a wound that needed surgery, but it was a temporary fix that did the job for a time. A constant uh, cleansing ritual that they would do to be deemed clean. If Israel were to belong to God, God would have to do way more than a band-aid on a wound that needed surgery. God was going to have to do a miraculous act that washed His people. Hear me, church. 
The same is true for us. The same is true for you and for me. If we are to be united with God, our sin must first be dealt with. It's the grand problem of each human that's born into this world. Our sin has to first be dealt with. You and an exilic Israelite have a lot in common, and that is that you have a barrier, naturally speaking, a barrier between you and a holy God. You may not feel it on the outside, but you ought to feel it on the inside, and that is that you, naturally speaking, left to your own devices, are deemed unclean. We're sinners, fallen, we're unworthy of inclusion with God. One of the reasons I think the weight and the power of the gospel meant a whole lot more for first century church members than it does for people here in the Bible Belt culture, one of the reasons the weight and the power of the gospel is lost on our culture, resulting in lukewarm Christians, is that we have too high a view of ourselves and thus too low a view of God's holiness. I'll say it this way, and this is going to sound weird. Just hear me, okay? Left to your own merit, you are no more worthy of salvation than Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden. I realize that that sounds weird. It should sound a little strange, but that's because our minds teach us fallacies. Left to our own merit, There's nothing more righteous, more worthy of salvation about you than any other human that has committed war crimes against other humans. We're unworthy of salvation because we, just like any other person, is unclean. And until we receive the gravity of who you are in contrast to a God of holiness, we never will really understand the magnitude of of who we really are and who God really is. We've got to understand this right here. Jesus said it this way in Mark 2.17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is saying is, the people that go to the doctor are those that realize they've got a problem. The people that don't go to the doctor are those that think that they're just fine. Jesus was talking to Pharisees that really weren't getting it. They were self-righteous, legalistic dummies. And Jesus is saying, if you don't realize that you need a healer, you will never understand the true gift of salvation. You've got to understand what it means that you and I left to our own devices without Christ. We're unclean. We're in desperate need of resurrection. Now, what does that say about God sending His Son to die for you? What does it say about God? Amazing things. It says that God is heroic. That God is active. It says that God made you worthy. Guys, if you understand that, if you really understand who you are left to your own merit, and yet who you are in the name of Jesus, if you understand that, don't you understand that that changes the way that you sing in in church? It changes the way that you listen to sermons. 
It changes the way that you, you read the lyrics to that song we just sang, glorify thy name. That changes when you understand that. It changes the humbling attitude that it is that we even get to be here as children of God. It changes the way that you pray. It changes the way that you drop the money that belongs to God in the offering plate. It changes the way that you serve other people when you realize who you are without Christ. It changes the way you forgive those who have wronged you. If you struggle with your mentality and doing any of those things, I suggest to you that the reason may just be that you have a little bit too high a view of yourself and thus too low a view of God. He has made me worthy. Sin left a crimson stain, but by His blood He's washed it white as snow. The result of that is that we can be born anew as children of God, which is what God promises to Israel right next after this. That's my second major point, is that our heroic God, number two, He has resurrected me. He has resurrected me. He has resurrected me. What we're going to see in this next verse, and we'll read it in just a second, is it's sort of a, a row, sort of dominoes of negative, positive contrast. I'm going to do this one thing, take this away, and give this thing. Take this away, give this thing. We see it in verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart, which necessitates taking away something else. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He says, I will remove the heart of stone. Notice, I will, I will. Who's acting? God is acting. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Negative pause. I'm taking away the deadness. I'm putting in life. This cleansing that we just talked about is not just external like the Levitical law would suggest. So you need to get cleaned up on the outside. No, the cleansing is far greater than an external cleansing like the law states. It's an internal renewal. Guys, isn't this the story of salvation? Isn't this our story? It's not just an Old Testament theme. It is our story. Sin had to be punished, and yet God made you clean. We're unable to be with God, and yet being unclean, God made us clean. He sought to wash us, and so God didn't just say, go and get clean. He says, I will provide the sacrifice that would accomplish your cleanness. And if you confess, and if you believe, God now regenerates and makes you new. To take the words of John 3, He rebirths you. It's the good news of the gospel. You have no business being reborn. But God in His grace and mercy gave the sacrifice, punished the Lamb, Christ the Savior, so that you could be deemed clean. As a result of that, if we confess with our mouths that we are broken sinners, if we believe that Christ was our substitutionary lamb, the sacrifice that took our place, that we could take His in righteousness. If we believe that, then what verse 26 says is that no longer will we have a dead spirit, but He will give us an alive spirit. No longer a lost and dull heart, but now a tender and living heart. Church, I am so afraid that we have lost sight of what an amazing action God has done at the cross of Christ at Calvary. An amazing 
decisive action. If we saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus, Lazarus come out, and this guy waddles out of that grave, still tied up by his, by his graveside bandages. If we saw that with our own eyes, we would be transfixed on the glory of Christ. We'd be blown away by that. But do you understand that when we behold the cross of Christ, Jesus Lazarus's countless millions. And yet we're more blown away if we were to see something like a last second touchdown. We get on our feet and we rejoice. And we become so dull by the landslide masses that are walking from death to life in God's church. We become desensitized to just how amazing our hero is. And it's resulted in a very stale church that is so stagnant at times. And we are the offenders. That would change if we really understood God as the hero of our salvation. It's easy to be selfish in salvation. It's easy to say, What's your testimony? I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I and I and I and I and I. I grew up in this family and I made this decision. It's easy to be selfish in your salvation, but folks, no one will believe. Certainly no one will believe unless they by faith repent and willingly believe. There's no question about it, but we must understand who gets the credit in our resurrection. You know, when a firefighter runs into a burning building and rescues someone from being engulfed in flames, it'd be silly to run up to the person that had been rescued and congratulate them and say, hey, way to go on having the wisdom to find the exit or way to go on having the insight to help that firefighter navigate the flames. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? The firefighter scoops up and rescued a hopeless and helpless victim. The victim only trusted and held on tight. Isn't that what we do? God is the hero. Hold tightly to Him. A high view of His work in saving you and point people to that reality. You're in a burning building that is torching you by the torment of sin. And God rushes into that building and rescues the sinner, helpless and hopeless. And we simply trust and obey. We leech onto Him and say, let's go. That's salvation. And if we are captivated by that, then we will willingly, certainly by faith, want to point people to that reality. That would mean in your parenting, way more important than teaching your child table manners and how to be punctual and how to clean up their mouth. Way more important. Those things are important. Don't get me wrong. Way more important than that is helping them to understand that they are lost and dying and need to be resurrected by a God and a Christ that is valiantly pursuing them. Does that get the energy in our parenting? Does that get the energy in any evangelistic effort in your life? In your personal walk, is God really getting the credit in your salvation? I mean, is this about you or is this about Him? Who's the hero here? When you read the Bible, Is it some sort of manual that, well, let me just see what he has for me today. 
Or is it a vessel through which you say, I just want to worship him as I read. And let me get a contact credit from it. You see this amazing washing. Amazing making us worthy. Amazing resurrecting us, making us alive in Christ. But he hasn't just done that. This is more than just a rebirth. It's an amazing thing that he's done that. But God doesn't even stop there. He makes a further promise. It's more than just a human recommitment to being a good person. Something miraculous has happened, and God promises it here 500 years before it would even become a reality. And that's number three. Our heroic God, He has empowered me. He's empowered us. He's empowered you if you're in Christ. He has empowered me. Look at verse 27. There it is again. I will. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. This third promise that we're looking at from God foreshadows the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the life of followers of Jesus. We are recipients of that promise through faith in Christ. We read about this a lot in the New Testament. The pouring out at Pentecost, which James sort of alluded to last Sunday morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, one verse that you probably know okay, uh, talks about this, is that God tells, or Paul tells us, that through the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit. The temple represented God's dwelling place. That's very important in the Old Testament. The temple represented God's dwelling place. So if Paul, let's, let's use some math here, okay? If, if Paul says that the temple, our bodies are temples, and the temple represents God's dwelling place, what does that passage mean? That your body resides the Holy Spirit of God. That's a big deal. The same God who parted the waters so that His nation could walk on dry land. The same God who walked on water. The same God that multiplied food. The same God that sent food from heaven. The same God that that made water come out of a rock. The same God that has done incredible things. The same God that resurrected that man Lazarus that we talked about. That same God has taken up residence in you. That's an amazing level of empowerment, isn't it? He has empowered me? Now why does He do this? Why does God give Him the Holy Spirit? Why does He give Him to us? Well, it says in this passage, so that we would walk in His statutes, it's a key word, statutes, and be careful to obey His rules. Statutes and rules. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the word statutes and rules, I think very legalistically. I mean, those are it is legal terms, by the way. There's a legalistic mentality to this. There's a, a rule-following aspect to this, which to me is sort of a turnoff because that makes it sound like uh, our faith is more religious and exercise and legalistic pragmatism than it is faith in Christ and, and so forth and so on. But hear me say this. That's a terrible way to look at it. This isn't legalism that he's talking about here. See, what was the sin of Israel? What was the main rule that they had broken? Rule number one. Commandment number one, 
you shall have no other gods before me. That was rule number one. That was the rule that they had forsaken, taking up idols. It was a relational rule, a relationship rule. Yes, it's a rule. Yes, it's a statute. But breaking that rule means that they had broken relationship with God. What does that mean for us? What does it mean to be careful to obey His statutes and walk in His rules? What does it mean? It means that God wants to be the center of your life. It means that God wants to be the center of your life. It means that your job is not the center of your life. Your kids are not the center of your life. Your spouse is not the center of your life. Your church is not the center of your life. Your God is the center of your life. No other gods. Rule number one, he wants to be the reason you wake up. He wants to be the reason that you parent the way that you parent. He wants to be the reason you love your spouse the way that you love your spouse. He wants to be the reason that you interact with your friends and your neighbors the way that you interact with your friends and your neighbors. He wants to be the reason that you are a man or a woman of character at work. He wants to be the reason that you are a man or a woman of integrity when you are alone. Godliness. And here's the key. He says that I will give you my spirit. Listen. And cause you to be able to do these things. Why do I emphasize that? Cause you to be able to. The reason I say that is because it is not possible to do the list that I just said unless God has given you the power to be about it. It's not possible. So he gave himself. So he gave you his power to be able to go and accomplish that. The reason I emphasize that is because, folks, we are fools if we think that we can be faithful, Christ-following believers and spend this much time with him. We are fools if we think that we cannot go to the well of the Word of God, the well of intimate prayer with him, and have a dying chance to be able to walk in His ways. We are fools if we think that that's the case. Fellowship with the Spirit is absolutely key. Intimacy with God is essential. If He is in you, as your body is a temple, are you in Him? Are you with Him? God is our hero. The Bible is about Him. It's a beautiful book. It's a reflection of His majesty, His glory. And like we sang the song a few minutes ago, we want to glorify His name in all that we say, all that we do, in all the earth. The good news of the Gospel is that He has made us worthy when we were not. That He has made us alive when we were not. And that He has given us power when we are vacant of power. We just got done celebrating that at Christmas time. Wonderful thing about the Christmas season, and it should be on our ears every day. Because Jesus is the way that God came to us. And Jesus is the way that you go to God. He has bridged the gap that was unbridgeable. The impossible reconciling work of bringing a God of justice that has to punish sinners and a God of love that must pardon the wrongdoer. An impossible mission 
that only a hero could accomplish. He poured out his justice on sin. He did. He just didn't pour it out on you. He poured it out at Calvary on the man Jesus. And he poured out his love. Well, that's the easy part. You're here, weren't learning about his love. He poured that out on you in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the way that God came to us. And he is the way that we go to God. From beginning to end, the Bible's rescue mission centers on Jesus as the hero. And so as we respond and sing, as you go and respond, the other six days of the week, let's celebrate Christ as just that. Heroic. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's message. We would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and love above all else. For more information, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thespringhillbaptist.